Is a baptism just a baptism? Our text this morning is Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to the wonders of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to the profoundness of your word. We pray that you would cause our hearts to be opened and our hands to do your will, that we might be hearers and doers of it, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a friend in high school who was a rather ordinary kid. He played in the marching band, was in the drama club, and came across as a top-shelf prime grade A nerd. After high school, though, I lost touch with him and all went silent. After many years of seeming obscurity, he reconnected with me via Facebook. In the intervening years, it was an epiphany to see that he had become an airborne ranger, working with Special Operations Command, was a high-ranking commander, a war veteran, extreme world traveler, and an all-around international man of intrigue. When Jesus was 12, he was found in the temple among the rabbis. And then all went silent for 18 years of seeming obscurity. But Jesus' sudden appearance at the Jordan River brought about an extreme epiphany of who he was and who God is. And this morning in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see Trinity Epiphany. Trinity Epiphany. Now, for those of you who don't know what Epiphany means, by the way, we're in the season of Epiphany. It's one of the more weirder named seasons for us in English, but Epiphany simply comes from the Greek word Epiphania, and it means to reveal, to cause something to appear. And so, the season of Epiphany is about the revealing of Jesus as Savior of the world and as King of the nations. So, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3 beginning in verse 15. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And we see there in the account, the account of this epiphany of Jesus, we see the baptism of the Christ. In verse 15 it says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now we see in this text here that it's filled with a great and profound contrast. On one side of this contrast is the greatest of the old covenant prophets, John. Jesus said that John, the baptizer, was the greatest of the old covenant or Old Testament prophets. By the way, the word covenant and testament are the same in Hebrew. Why is he the greatest of the Old Testament or Old Covenant prophets? Did John call fire down from heaven like Elijah? Did he cause axe heads to float? Did he perform miracles? And yet Jesus himself, the Messiah, said that John was the greatest of the Old Testament or Old Covenant prophets. Why? Because of his position. He was chosen and given the privilege of being that final prophet who fulfills all the prophets and their words who runs right before the coming of the Messiah, which is what all the prophets were pointing toward, what all the prophets were longing for. John is the one who runs right before the coming of Messiah. And on the other side of the contrast is the one who comes after John, the one who is greater than the old covenant itself because he himself as Messiah fulfills all of the old covenant promises. John here says he baptizes with water as a servant of the one who comes, who will baptize with the Spirit and will baptize with fire. Going on to verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand, 
to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. For all power and authority, which had been placed into the hands of the Jewish leaders, they wished this upon John. They thought that he might be the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to exercise power. He will be the new David sitting upon his throne. Is John the Messiah? It's the one who will epiphany who has the power. The one who comes after John is the one who gathers and separates and burns. You see, the metaphor here is this. The gathering of the great harvest of the world. The gathering of the good and the just and of the wicked. We see that the wheat and the tares, that is the weeds, are all going to be gathered together. And the one who comes, he's going to gather out the wheat and he's going to throw away the chaff. And he's going to burn the chaff. And the burning of the chaff means that he has judgment in his hand. Judgment for the entire world. The one who comes has the power of judgment. And so John preached the good news. By the way, the word there, euangelion, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, maybe you can see some other words we have in English drawn forth from it. The word there for gospel means good news. It's actually a declaration, a royal declaration of good news. It's euangelion. That's where we get our word evangel or evangelize from. You see, when you say, I want to evangelize, you're saying, I want to gospelize people. Euangelion. John preached the euangelion. John preached the good news. But what happened? Verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John preached the good news And for that, the worldly ruler, that is, Herod, the one who calls himself the king of the Jews, imprisoned John. You see, John confronted the sexual sins of his day. John confronted the cultural sins of his day. And when you truly speak truth to power, not posturing like people like Senator Schumer or Representative Pelosi or Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who are actually part of the power structure itself, When you truly speak truth to power, then the power that be may come against you. When you question things that our culture says, you may become very unpopular. John would have done these things. John would have called out the sins of our day. What are the sins of our day? When we say that the Bible and all human history has affirmed that marriage is between one man and one woman only. When we say that Jesus is Lord. And that there's kings and rulers in this age, but they must all submit themselves under the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, not the president, not the Congress, not the Supreme Court. When we say that there are only two genders, male and female, God created them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. When we call out the great heresies of our day, then we stand like John. Guess what, folks? People aren't going to like us. They might put us in prison like they did with John. You might even end up martyred one day. When you say things like this and you speak truth to power, you might be persecuted, you might be martyred, but we're not the politically correct, flaccid, convictionless, politically correct mob of our day. We're not the riskless drones of Aldous Huxley's brave new world. We need to be preachers with spines of steel like John the Baptist in our days. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, now let's continue on, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. 
All the people were baptized. We're told in the gospel accounts that all the people were going down to the Jordan River to be baptized. The common folk were coming to the Jordan River to be baptized. The rulers and authorities were coming to the Jordan River to be baptized. Soldiers were coming to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. In fact, we see that even the rulers and sinners were coming to the river to be baptized. But Jesus was also baptized. You ever thought about that? Kids, you ever thought about why did Jesus need to be baptized? Jesus is sinless. He's the God-man, the second person of the triune God come in flesh. He is without sin. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Well, the point is this. Jesus, though sinless, needs to identify with humanity. Jesus is a real human being, yet without sin. Sinners get baptized, so why did Jesus get baptized? Well, one thing is this. All of you, when you get baptized, it's an anointing. It's a setting apart. It's a ceremony where you come into a new way of life, a new calling, a new vocation, as it were. You're called about to be holy warriors for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is set apart and anointed to his ministry as Messiah. But what else about it? And I think this is most profound and wonderful. The Lord Jesus, though sinless, was baptized as though he were a sinner. As though he were a sinner. Why? Because he will take our sin on the cross. Because him who knew no sin would become sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. And even here at his baptism, though not a sinner, he takes baptism as though he is one. To identify with us. To prepare himself to take our place. We sinners who will have forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? Now, Jesus was also baptizing. Did you know that? Did you know Jesus was baptizing? Now, technically, it was his disciples that were baptizing under his authority. In John chapter 3, verse 22, it says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Aon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. And in chapter 4, verse 1, and when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So Jesus was baptizing through the authority of his apostles. Jesus continues to be baptized through the ministers of his church. When Jesus was baptized, there was a great epiphany. Again, epiphany means a revealing, causing something to appear. The heavens were open. Going on to verse 22 in the first part. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit epiphany as a dove. Why a dove? You ever thought about that? Why did the Spirit come down as a dove? Why not as a hawk? Why not coming down as, I don't know, some other bird or some other animal? But the Spirit comes down as a dove. Why a dove? Think about what doves are in the Old Testament. Well, there's two broad places where we find the dove in the Old Testament. First of all, it is a clean sacrifice. It is a lowly sacrifice. It's a small sacrifice for small people. It's a small sacrifice for the poor people of the land. And so we see the dove is a gentle creature, but it is also clean and it is offered as a clean sacrifice. Now notice this. There's a dove coming down, but there's another clean animal here too. There's a lamb in the water being baptized. But also, what about doves? And I think this is most profound, friends. Where do you see doves in the Old Testament or a dove? Anybody? Kids? Where do you see a dove in the Old Testament? 
Anyone? How about at the flood? Right? Noah's Ark. We're told in 1 Peter that, that the Ark and the flood were actually a baptism, pointing toward the reality of baptism. We see that the waters came upon the earth, and that baptized the world, and the sinful world was destroyed through that baptism, but the Ark floating on the seas, was baptized with water coming down from above, and everybody that was inside was safe. And what did Noah do? He took a dove. He sent it out. It flew around, and it came back. Why? The water was still on the earth. There was no dry land. He sent it out again, and it brought back a branch in its mouth, an olive branch. This meant that the water was now coming down. God's judgment was receding upon the earth. And we see that this olive branch in the mouth of the dove is a universal symbol of peace. The United Nations uses it as their logo. Sends out the dove the final time. It does not return. What's going on with the dove in the Old Testament? God's judgment has come to an end. His baptismal judgment, which covered everybody, including those in the ark, has come to an end. And now there is peace between God and men. There is peace on the world and resurrection and newness of life have come. And look what's happening here. At Jesus' baptism, the dove comes down and rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God is at peace with men through the Lord Jesus Christ, this Lamb of God upon whom the dove comes upon. The dove here comes on the new humanity as a sign of peace. The judgment is ending for fallen humanity through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second part of verse 22, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. A voice from heaven speaks to Jesus as the beloved son. And if he's a beloved son, it means he has a father. And this served to do a couple of things. It confirmed to those hearing that Jesus is epiphanied as the Messiah. But it also confirmed to the Lord Jesus Christ himself as his self-understanding of who he is as the God-man comes who he is, the beloved son who has the spirit come upon him. And friends, why did I call this Trinity Epiphany? Look what happens at Jesus' baptism. The father's there speaking to the son. The son, the second person of the triune God, is standing in the water being baptized. The dove, representing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, comes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' baptism epiphanies the Trinity. Father, son, and Holy Spirit. But here's the point, friends, for us. It also points to our baptisms. Every time someone's baptized, it's done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And once again, it epiphanies the Trinity. In fact, we have our charge each week here during the proper seasons. It's the Great Commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you as we hear it read that you would actually take the words in and think about the profundity of it. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18, and he came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them literally into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that, that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Next time we have a baptism here, even if it's a little child, be reminded that it is a Trinitarian baptism that it mirrors Jesus' baptism, for Jesus' baptism is our baptism. The American bison, what we call buffalo, were once the most numerous large mammals on earth. In 1871, an American soldier in Kansas came upon one of these stupendous herds. 
first encountering some outlying bison that acted like a tip of an iceberg. But then there was a great epiphany as the herd revealed itself as millions strong and so immense that it took the cavalrymen six days to ride his horse through it. When Jesus came to be baptized at the Jordan River by John, he must have seemed like an outlier to John's ministry of heralding the coming of the king and the kingdom. But Jesus, in human flesh, was like the tip of a great iceberg. And Jesus came up out of the water. There was a great epiphany as the immense triune Godhead was revealed, the Father's voice from heaven, the Son baptized in human flesh, the Holy Spirit descending as the dove. This morning we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, Trinity Epiphany. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. May we once again see the great epiphany of the Godhead at our Lord Jesus Christ's baptism. May we rejoice in it even as we rejoice in our own baptisms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.